0: To today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, January 26, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Sblavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled Inspiring Big Dreams Capital Campaign Launches for Cedar Rapids West Side Library. Campaign kicks off with $250,000 from Cedar Rapids Public Library Foundation. It's written by Grace King of the Gazette. It's Christmas every day for Cedar Rapids LAD Library Branch Manager Stephanie Hall as staff anticipate breaking ground on a new facility on the west side of the city this fall. The Cedar Rapids Public Library Foundation launched its Inspiring Big Dreams Capital Campaign Thursday to build a new library, replacing the building at 3750 Williams Boulevard Southwest that was previously a Target store. The campaign seeks to raise $10 million. The foundation announced a $250,000 donation to the project, money raised through donations and the sale of books for $1 to $2 apiece over the years. About 50 community members, library staff, and city and county officials gathered Thursday at the Ladd Library to celebrate the kickoff of the capital campaign. We will be creating a bigger and more thoughtfully designed space to serve this side of town, Hall said. This was never intended to be a library. We're making it work now to have something that's designed to be a community space, not only for our books, but to help with community resilience. The library will be built near the corner of Edgewood Road and 20th Avenue Southwest within walking distance of the current Ladd Library, a leased space that opened in 2013. The Opportunity Center inside the library was established in 2018. Hall said demand for the Opportunity Center has grown exponentially over the past six months. More than 60% of people who seek out the community center are unemployed. At the library, they get help creating a resume and searching for a job. It will be so nice to have a more dedicated space to accomplish that for people, Hall said. Libby Slappy, president of the Friends of the Cedar Rapids Public Library and co-chair of the campaign, said when the Lad Library opened, there was a real demand for more than books. This is where people come. They know they can get help, Slappy said. One of the things most touching for me is that women have played such a key role in the birth and growth of our Cedar Rapids Public Library, Slappy said. This started in 1895 when Ada Van Vechten spurred people to vote to create a public library in Cedar Rapids. At the time, women had been allowed to vote in Iowa for only a little more than a year. The Ladd Library itself is named for Maryland Ladd, a woman who donated $750,000 to the library at the time of her death in 2011. It was another woman, Nadine Sandberg, who donated $2 million in 2020 from her estate, making the dream of a dedicated library on the west side of Cedar Rapids a reality. There are people out there that we've never met love books who love the library and they'll be ready to step up now that they know this project is happening the impact of this new library on the west side of the community will be huge slappy said the west side library will have a larger selection of materials more space to gather and a dedicated children's program space it will be developed by the city of cedar rapids to include a new six acre city park making it a destination for the entire community The library project will cost less than $25 million. The City of Cedar Rapids has allocated $6 million, and the Lynn County Board of Supervisors has allocated an additional $4 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds. Sandberg's estate gift of $2 million to the Library Foundation in 2022 was used to purchase the land for the new library. Additional funds have come from private and corporate gifts given to the inspiring big dreams campaign. This project wouldn't be possible without the generous support we've already received. Foundation executive director, Charity Tyler said in a news release. Now we need our community to join us to make our big dreams for the west side a reality. The design process for the library and the park are underway. The library expects to break ground on the projects this fall and open in late 2026. More than one hundred thousand people visit the Ladd Library each year. With more space and resources, the library expects to see three hundred thousand visitors annually. We've seen again and again how the library enriches the community library, Director Dara De- Schmidt said in a news release. From putting books in the hands of children to helping job seekers, the library is proud to serve our patrons. The new library will include a twenty a square. Footage increase from 28,405 square feet at Ladd Library to nearly 40,000 square feet. Increased space for children's learning with zones for creative play, technology use, monitor skill development. 10 study rooms, a large conference room, and a conference center all available for public use. Outdoor reading courtyards and a library lawn for gathering and programs. Additional and better design space for job seekers and library partners to provide services to the community and increased accessibility for ease of use and connection to walking trails and sidewalks sidewalks Learn more about the project and how to support the inspiring big dreams campaign at crlibrary.org slash big dreams Our next article is entitled, House GOP may remove gender from Iowa Civil Rights Act. Opponents call proposed legislation hateful, horrible. It's written by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. The Iowa Civil Rights Act would be changed by removing gender identity as a protected class and by adding gender dysphoria to disabilities covered by the act under legislation that will be considered by state lawmakers next week at the Iowa Capitol. Created in 1965, the Iowa Civil Rights Act prevents discrimination based on identifying characteristics such as age, race, color, religion, national origin, or disability. The act was amended in 2007 to add sexual orientation and gender identity. A bill introduced by Iowa State lawmaker Jeff Shipley, a Republican from Birmingham, would remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Shipley's bill would instead add to the acts covered disabilities gender dysphoria, which the American Psychiatric Association defines as psychological distress that results when an individual has a gender identity that is different from their sex at birth. Advocates for transgender people expressed their vehement opposition to the proposal. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, it's going to hurt a lot of people," said Keenan Crow with the LGBTQ advocacy organization One Iowa. The proposed bill, House File 2082, would need to move through the Iowa House Judiciary Committee, which is chaired by Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison. A 2020 proposal simply to remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act did not advance through Holt's committee that year. This time, Holt said. Holt told the Des Moines Register that he wants to hear the conversation around the new proposal from Shipley, calling it an interesting concept. I just want to hear a conversation about it. I want to have a subcommittee hearing and hear a conversation about it, Holt told the Register. I still have concerns about this, but I at least want to have the conversation and see where it goes. The subcommittee hearing, the first step in Iowa's state lawmaking process, is scheduled for Wednesday at the Iowa Capitol. Iowa Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, who will represent his party on the subcommittee's legislative panel, said the proposal is terrible for multiple reasons, including the way the bill removes gender identity from the act's protections, but includes gender dysphoria among protected disabilities. First off, it's insulting, Sheets said. To characterize people who are non-binary and transgender as having a mental illness essentially, which is what it does, to say that they're disabled mentally for being themselves. I think this is just wrong." Sheets and Crow said the proposal likely would not provide the same legal protections to transgender Iowans as the current Civil Rights Act. Crow noted that not all transgender people are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Being transgender and having gender dysphoria are two separate things. There are a decent amount of trans people that have gender dysphoria and a decent amount of trans people who don't have gender dysphoria, Crowe said. So you're going to leave out the entire group of people who has no need for a diagnosis. Representative Jennifer Conferst, the leader of the minority party Democrats in the Iowa House, called the proposal hateful, unnecessary, And said there is a huge risk for unintended consequence. She said amending the Iowa Civil Rights Act in this way would be the exact opposite of the spirit of who Iowans are and what Iowans want. State House Republicans in the past two legislative sessions have passed a series of new laws impacting transgender and other LGBTQ Iowans including a ban on gender transition treatments and surgeries for minors. A ban on the teaching of gender identity or sexual orientation through 6th grade. A ban on transgender students using K-12 through school bathrooms that align with their gender identity by requiring students to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender at birth. And a ban on transgender girls competing in girls sports. And the final story from the front page of the Gazette this morning. Lawmakers advance rail safety bill despite reservations. bill would require railroads to deploy defect detectors along branch lines. This is written by Tom Barton of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa lawmakers advanced legislation Thursday that would require railroads to deploy train defect detectors along their branch lines in the state amid concerns about increased train traffic in eastern Iowa and a derailment of toxic chemicals last year in Ohio. Senate File 512 requires a railroad company to install and maintain at least one sensor every 15 miles on a branch line to detect axle and brake abnormalities on a passing train and alert the crew of any detected abnormality. The bill also creates a penalty between $500 and $5,000 for each time a train crosses or passes by a sensor that fails to notify the train crew of a detected defect. Subsequent violations would result in a penalty of between $5,000 and $10,000. The move comes in the wake of a fiery derailment last year of a train carrying toxic chemicals in eastern Ohio that set off evacuations, a federal investigation, and concerns about the effect the derailment and the fire could have on health and the environment. It also comes amid concerns from eastern Iowa communities about the impact of increased train traffic resulting from last year's merger of Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern to create the first single-line freight rail network connecting Mexico, the United States, and Canada. According to the companies, the biggest traffic increases will be between Cebula, and Iowa Island City in the Mississippi River. And Kansas City, Missouri adding about 14.4 trains per day from 8 to roughly 22 by 2027. The train tracks run along the riverfronts of several Mississippi river towns including Clinton, Comanche, Princeton, LeClaire, Bettendorf, Davenport, and Muscatine. Seven cities in Iowa agreed to settlement payments from Canadian Pacific in exchange for not commenting publicly on the merger including a 10 million dollar payout to Davenport other cities that accepted agreements included Bettendorf, Muscatine, LeClaire, Clinton, Washington, and Fruitland. Senator Cindy Win- Winkler, a Democrat from Davenport, referenced the trained derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, as well as the railroad merger. She also raised concerns that the bill applies only to branch lines and not main lines operated by railroads in the state. In the Quad Cities area we have to be very cognizant of the number of trains coming through with the merger, she said, and I think East Palestine in Ohio has taught us some lessons in regard to the importance of detectors. I was hoping we might be able to expand this a little bit and make sure we are well informed and well protected with our rail lines. An initial report from the National Transportation Safety Board said an overheated wheel bearing was to blame for the Ohio derailment. An alarm did not sound to alert the crew to check a hot axle until the train passed a sensor not far from where it ultimately derailed. The sensor placed by Norfolk Southern alongside its track registered that the wheel bearing was 250 degrees above the ambient temperature, the report said. Representatives for railroad companies opposed the Iowa bill Arguing they've voluntarily made dramatic safety improvements across every aspect of the industry. Larry Lloyd, senior director of U.S. government affairs for Canadian Pacific, Kansas City, noted derailments have decreased in the last two decades. According to data released last year by the Federal Railroad Administration, the nation's train accident rate is down 28% since the year 2000 and the last decade was the safest on record. Mainline railroad accidents rates declined 44% since 2000. The derailment rate is down 31% since 2000 for all railroads. That has all happened because of the technology that railroads are privately investing in and deploying on our own, Lloyd said. We've all deployed those detectors already along our system, he said, in areas that make best sense based on data and the condition, geography, and use of the line. He also noted the bill talks about a limited amount of sensors, saying the railway uses six different types of sensors that it deploys along its branch and main lines. If the state wants to play a role in this, we'd be happy to have a discussion about partnerships we could make. That would encourage additional deployment of technology that would bring additional investment to iowa lloyd said that would bring in additional innovation that iowa can be a leader on those would be conversations we would want to have not talking about something that we're already doing railway representatives also raised concerns about the cost of installing the sensors on iowa's short line railroads safety is always a cost-benefit analysis said brad everly president representing bnsf railway company and we can't eliminate all risk and rail safety is far greater than our roads chris smith with smart transportation which represents railroad workers supports the legislation smith said staffing is thin and safety has suffered as railroads have cut employees and stretched the length of trains There's no federal standard or regulations for detectors, he told lawmakers, adding there are hundreds of miles of track in the state of Iowa that have no detectors. All these complaints, all these companies want to run their own standards and say they are doing the best, Smith said. And East Palestine quite simply proved that it is not the best system out there, that there needs to be some oversight. Smith said the bill does not go far enough and should be amended to include other sensors to monitor wheel bearings, temperature, and dragging equipment. Michael Walker, with the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainsmen, has spent 20 years on the railroad. The detectors that are on the track we never go over. We depend on those to keep us safe, he said. An airline pilot can visually inspect the plane before takeoff, but that's not feasible for locomotive engineers with trains that can be up to three miles long, he said. I think this is a very important bill to protect the trains and the people that run tracks, the employees, Walker said. Although lawmakers advanced the bill, members of the three-person subcommittee said they had reservations. I believe this is a good thing, but I wonder if it's really a solution, though, Senator Scott Webster, a Republican from Bettendorf, said. You put them every 15 miles and no communication happens. It wouldn't help. I think there's an overall problem here that sounds like maybe a little bit bigger than this particular situation. He also echoed Winkler's concerns about the bill not applying to main rail systems. I'm in support of moving this along to continue conversation, Winkler said. We have an opportunity to make sure that what we are doing is cost-effective as well as keeping safety in mind. Our next article is entitled, Who Will Manage Downtown Cedar Rapids Business District? Panel TAP's Familiar Consultant to Advise. This is written by Marissa Payne of the Gazette. The Denver-based consultants the city tapped to draft a new vision plan guiding the revitalization of downtown Cedar Rapids will advise on possible changes to the structure of downtown's managing entity. As the downtown self-supported Municipal Improvement District Commission contemplates changing which entity manages its operations, it has enlisted Progressive Urban Management Associates to advise on the process. The SSMID's structure has been a sticking point for some, but not all, council members who see it as key in driving the newly adopted plan guiding downtown's future, as some initiatives will take partnerships and investment among public and private partners to bring to life. The Downtown SSMID Commission is a mayor-appointed panel that oversees the district where a tax is levied on property owners for beautification projects, programming, and maintenance. The Commission is forming a task force to make a recommendation on its structure which the whole SSMID will eventually vote on. The Cedar Rapids City Council in December adopted a new downtown vision plan that PUMA the consultants drafted with community input to provide a five-year guide for, to transform downtown. The plan identifies strategies and entities responsible for executing about 70 initiatives to spark new life into downtown as it emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic. The vision plan is a collaboration between the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance, the Downtown SSMID, the City of Cedar Rapids, Linn County, and the 20. 2001 Development Corporation, a local property ownership group that has bought and sold downtown buildings over the last 30 years. To strengthen downtown services and implement plan recommendations and align with the practices of most cities nationwide, the plan suggests a strengthened public private downtown management approach. It outlined the pros and cons of the existing management structure and explored two alternatives Creating a more district downtown business center within the Alliance or having the SSMID contract with an independent nonprofit. For the last 12 years, the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance has housed all downtown management and marketing responsibilities. Nikki Wilcox, the Elite Alliance's strategic development director, works with new program manager Jennifer Bassett on downtown initiatives. Wilcox on administrative and strategic tasks and Bassett on building relationships with downtown stakeholders and executing SSMID goals. Because of a lack of consensus between Cedar Rapids city officials, the SSMID and the Alliance on the Structure of Organizations Managing Downtown, Puma President Brad Siegel previously said, the consultants did not make a recommendation for which option was best. The plan urges a business plan for the preferred option and a collaboration commitment from the three key leaders, the City, Economic Alliance, and the SSMID. When adopting the plan, Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell said future conversations about organizational structure are going to be critical to the success of this plan. Council Member Ann Poe initially suggested tabling the plan's consideration until a structure was determined but ultimately the plan passed with unanimous support among the nine member council. Others, including council member Dale Todd, said it was important to begin action on the goals of the plan. SSMID commission chair, James Klein, president of Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust, said it likely will take 90 days for the task force to complete its work. Commission member, Randy Rings, True North's general counsel will chair the task force. Puma has given the SSMID recommendations on who should be on this panel. In the coming weeks, rings will review recommendations provided by Puma and ask appropriate people to be on the task force, Wilcox said. Wilcox said the SSMID is paying for the task force's work Buma advises on building SSMIDs, or business improvement districts, in other cities, and consultants will show the task force best practices of similar cities nationwide, she said, so we're excited to have their expertise. They know exactly how our city functions because they have personally talked to over 250 stakeholders in Cedar Rapids in the downtown plans formation, Wilcox said. The 15 member commission has the final vote on the structure. The city council recently approved appointing Greg Cohn, owner of Black Sheep and Pickle Palace, to the commission, but one vacancy remains. I will turn to the Insight page, and today's Gazette editorial is entitled We Need Deeper Discussion on Gun Violence. Last weekend, while appearing on Iowa PBS Iowa Press program, Governor Kim Reynolds was asked whether changes to state gun laws should be on the table in the wake of a deadly school shooting in Perry on January the 4th. The governor couldn't discard the idea fast enough. No additional gun laws would have prevented what happened, Reynolds said. There's just evil out there. It was a shallow, thoughtless, and dismissive answer, and one that should give all Iowans pause. While investigators continued their work piecing together what led to the shooting at Perry High School, There are many unknowns and likely no single solution. Authorities have yet to say how the 17 year old shooter obtained the guns he used to kill a sixth grader and the high school principal while wounding four others. That would seem to be a piece of information necessary to draw a conclusion on whether gun regulations could help avert another tragedy in the future. How does evil obtain weaponry? It's a question the governor isn't asking. A governor who is more than willing to protect children from contrived threats, transgender students in bathrooms, pornographic books in school libraries, curriculum that includes our history and girls and the invasion of transgender athletes in women's sports, has nothing to say about guns. Guns have killed students in classrooms and on campuses across the country. It's a real threat to children. Instead of conceding guns play any role, GOP lawmakers are looking for ways to further loosen restrictions. They may revisit a bill allowing gun owners to store secured guns in vehicles parked in public lots, including schools and colleges. We urge the governor to pause and provide a deeper response. Convene an expert panel to review the complete investigative file, examine policy and programming innovations, and design something intended to prevent further incidents. Reynolds is right when she points to mental illness as a key ingredient in youth violence and mass shootings. But although the governor has increased funding for mental health care in certain areas, the overall system, including the children's mental health system, are woefully underfunded with unequal access to services. Families facing agonizing wait lists for care and some are forced to send kids out of state for help. If Statehouse Republicans can afford to hand out billions of dollars in tax cuts and sock away billions more in a budget surplus, there are funds available to vastly improve access to mental health care. This is a deadly serious issue that deserves more than photo ops and easy platitudes. Having a deeper discussion could be a worthwhile process finding solutions beyond simply surrendering to evil. And in a guest column from john s westerfeld who is board certified in counseling psychology a suicidologist and a professor emeritus at the university of iowa the views expressed are his own it is entitled learn the suicide risk factors according to the latest data available from the american association of suicidology In 2021, there were 48,183 completed suicides in the United States, which is 132 per day. In 2021, 549 Iowans ended their own lives, an average of 1.5 every day. Suicide is a public health crisis. The suicide rate is the highest it has been since 1941, according to preliminary 2022 data reported by USA Today in November. As 2024 begins, it is important to review basic information about suicide as well as what to do if you are concerned about someone being potentially suicidal. Even after many years of research, it remains very difficult to predict suicidal behavior. However, there are a few key risk factors. These risk factors include, but are not limited to, depression, feeling hopeless and helpless, Ta- talking about wanting to die, low self esteem, isolation slash loneliness, experiencing violence and victimization, increased use of drugs and alcohol, and a previous attempt. Access to firearms is an additional concern because for many years firearms have been the number one method people have used in carrying out suicide. In 2022, 26,993 people ended their lives using a firearm, according to CDC provisional data in July of 2023. In my view, reducing firearm access would lower the suicide rate and is of paramount importance. If you are concerned about someone being suicidal, it is important to reach out and ask what many suicidologists call the question, which is, have you been feeling so badly lately that you have thought about harming yourself or some approximation of this wording a myth remains that by introducing the topic we will give people the idea to carry out a suicide you are more likely to save a life than cause a death by raising the issue and giving the individual permission to talk about how they are feeling it is also important to provide the individual with hope monitor them for risk and encourage seeking help Don't give up encouraging the individual to seek treatment. It has been my experience people will frequently initially resist going for help, but with continued support and encouragement, many will eventually seek treatment. A very important resource is the phone number 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This number can also be texted. You can contact the 988 lifeline for your own support should you be feeling suicidal but also receive help in terms of assisting someone else who would consider, who you consider potentially suicidal. There have been some positive advances related to suicide prevention. One of the most recent and important is that after many years of discussion, a netting system has been put in place at the Golden Gate Bridge. I believe there's also more general awareness about the issue. We need to educate the public about warning signs, what to do if concerned about someone, and available resources. We also need increased funding for mental health generally and suicide prevention-slash-response specifically. Hopefully, we can begin to reduce the suicide rate and save lives. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Blavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we turn to today's obituaries. First, we remember Richard Dick T. Davin from Iowa City, age 92, a longtime Iowa City re- Realtor Died suddenly Wednesday, January 24, 2024 at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Services are pending at this time through Gay and siha Funeral and Cremation Services. Next, we remember Dwayne H. Sobaski of Cedar Rapids, 70 years old, formerly of Washington, Iowa, who passed away Saturday, January 6, 2024 at the Old Dwarf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha, Iowa. Dwayne requested cremation and a celebration of his life with no tears. The Celebration Open House will be held Saturday, January the 27th, 2024 from 1 to 4 p.m. at Copper Creek Ridge, 1182 Commercial Drive, Riverside, Iowa. Another Celebration Open House will be held Saturday, May the 4th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Gutenberg Golf Course in Gutenberg, Iowa. Memorials have been established for the Old Dorf Hospice House of Mercy, or Peyton Hayes Foundation for Cardiac Kids. Beatty Petersime Funeral Home is assisting Dwayne's family. Next we remember Nancy Williams, age 86, of Monticello, who passed away at the Lynn Manor Care Center on Wednesday, January 24th with her family by her side. Nancy had a stroke after her courageous battle with dementia and Alzheimer's. Funeral services will be held at the United Church of Monticello at ten thirty a.m. on Tuesday, January the thirtieth, with burial following at Oakwood Cemetery in Monticello, with visitation at the Getch Funeral Home, Monticello, on Monday, January the twenty ninth, from four to seven p.m. Pastor Catherine Newhall will officiate. Thoughts, memories, and condolences may be directed to the family at getchonline.com. And that's spelled G-O-E-T-T-S-C-H online.com. In lieu of flowers, please consider making a donation to the Alzheimer's Association or the Monticello School District Foundation. Now we remember Herbert Herb Wambolt Jr., age 81, formerly of Cedar Rapids, who died Thursday, January 18, 2024, at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics from a long illness. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home is in charge of the arrangements. Full obituary for Herb can be found at www.cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Now we remember Karen Crystal Nelson Wendt of Norcross, Georgia, age 94, who joined her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on January the 23rd, 2024, after an extended illness. Visitation on Wednesday, January 31st, 2024 at 10.30 a.m. with funeral at 11.30 a.m. at Trinity Lutheran Church, 801 Washington Avenue in Lowden, Iowa. The Reverend Daniel Redhog and the Reverend Heroy Michael officiating Christian burial will take place at Trinity Lutheran Cemetery in Lowden immediately following the funeral lunch at the church immediately following the burial. Memorials in Karen's memory may be made to St. Mark Lutheran Church, 2110 Brockett Road, Tucker, Georgia, 30084, or your favorite children's charity. For the full obituary, please go to www.chapmanfh.com. And we remember Mark Dean Sutton, age 64, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, who died Wednesday, January the 24th, 2024, at his home. A visitation will be held from 4 to 8 p.m. on Monday, January the 29th, 2024, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. A funeral service will take place at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 30th, 2024, at the funeral home. Burial will take place at a later date at St. John's Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Memorials may be directed to the family. Please share a memory of Mark at www.murdockfuneralhome.com under obituaries. And we remember Jan Paul Schumacher, age 78, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, who passed away on Wednesday, January the 24th, 2024, at his home. Visitation from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024 at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Funeral mass 10:30 a.m. January the 31st, 2024 at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, with visitation 1 hour prior to the service. Burial at St. Joseph's Cemetery. Please share your support and memories with Jan's family on his tribute wall at www.stuartbaxter.com under obituaries. And we remember Marjorie Eloise Thomas Lubin, aged 94, who passed away on January 24, 2024 at Monticello Nursing Home, surrounded by all her loved ones. She was born on September 14, 1929. She was the daughter of Dr. Colin G. Thomas and Eloise K. Thomas. Marjorie graduated from Monticello High School in 1947 and attended the University of Iowa, graduating in 1951. She worked for a year at Sperry Company in Long Island, New York. Marjorie returned to Monticello and married Robert Howard Lubin on December 24, 1952. They raised two sons, David and Alan Lubin. Bob and Marge farmed north of Monticello until 1989, and they moved to a farm south of Monticello. She was a member of PEO Chapter FP for over 70 years, a member of Friday Club until its demise after 100 years, and a founding member of the Monticello School Foundation. She was active in the Presbyterian Church, where she sang sang in the choir, served as an elder deacon, and she was one of the original pie ladies for many years. Marge loved bowling and competed on the bowling league until she was 75 years old. She also sang in the Joyful Noise Choir. She stayed active by swimming, gardening, walking on the treadmill, and playing bridge. I'll read a little more Cedar Rapids news before we move on to the sports. Three men charged with recklessly shooting firearms. This is written by Emily Anderson of the Gazette. Three people have been arrested in relation to a shots fired incident in Iowa City on Christmas. Bupi Singh, age 21, of Coraville, Gurpreet Singh, age 22, of Iowa City, and Satnam Singh, age 27, of Iowa City, have each been charged with reckless use of a firearm and use of a dangerous weapon in the commission of a crime. Police were called to the 200 block of South Van Buren Street at 2.08 a.m. December the 25th for reports of shots fired in an alley, according to a news release from the Iowa City Police Department. No injuries were reported. The three men were also seen on video discharging a firearm in a reckless manner in a public space, according to criminal complaints. They were all taken into custody Thursday and are each being held in the Johnson County Jail on a $3,000 cash or surety bond. And police investigate homicide at Cedar Rapids Apartment Complex. A 29-year-old man was found injured Wednesday night outside a southeast Cedar Rapids apartment complex and later died at a hospital, police said. Cedar Rapids police said they were called at 8.59 8:59 8:59 p.m. Wednesday about an injured person at 1258 15th Street Southeast. When officers arrived, they found the man whose name has not yet been released outside the building. He was treated at the scene and taken to a hospital where he later died. Police did not describe the nature of his injuries, but said the death was a homicide, the city's first in 2024. Police said the incident remains an active investigation and did not announce any suspects has been detained or arrested. And Cedar Rapids Bank robbery suspects caught in New Orleans. A man, police believe, robbed a Northeast Cedar Rapids Bank January the 3rd, was arrested Wednesday in Louisiana, according to Cedar Rapids Police. Andrew Durr, age 21, was arrested in New Orleans as was in the custody of the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office, authorities said, while arrangements were being made to bring him back to Iowa. He will face charges related to the armed robbery. Cedar Rapids Police responded about 9 a.m. January the 3rd, to the Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust branch at 5400 Council Street Northeast for reports of an armed robbery. The assailant, who police said displayed a gun, was wearing a black mask and an Iowa Hawkeyes knit cap. Last week, Cedar Rapids police investigators working with the FBI said they had identified the robber as Durr and appealed to the public for help in finding him, offering the possibility of a reward from the U.S. Marshals Service. They described him as armed and dangerous. Cedar Rapids police did not say how he was found or whether a reward would be paid. Now we'll move over to sports. Our top story has to do with high school girls wrestling and it says enticing storylines for girls regionals. Decorah's Simon can become the state's first four-time state champion. It's written by Riley Cole. Wrestlers will descend by... Today, upon High V Hall in Des Moines Alliant Energy Powerhouse in Cedar Rapids, the Field House at Mason City High School and Tyson Arena in Sioux City, in hopes of punching a ticket to next week's IGHSAU State Tournament, February 1st through 2nd at Extreme Arena in Coralville. Here are five storylines you should watch: Simon's Quest. Decorah senior Naomi Simon is coming off an inaugural IGHSAU state title from a year ago. Pair that with her two Iowa wrestling coaches and officials titles and she can become the state's first four-time girls wrestling state champion. She enters Region 8 Super Regional in Mason City with a 39-win, 0-loss record at 170 pounds and knows the Vikings have put in hard work to get to the postseason. The work that my team and I have put in is going to pay off and we are going to have an incredible tournament, Simon said. Childers repeat. Prairie's Mackenzie Childers is out to repeat her state title after knocking off the defending 2022 state champion Hannah Rogers of Bentendorf in last year's postseason tournaments. Her approach to defending her state title is to take it one match at a time. I found that I perform better when I don't make any tournament or match bigger than the others, Childers said. I'm excited to compete and hopefully watch many of my teammates qualify for the state tournament. Childers is coming off a Mississippi Valley Conference title and was named the tournament's outstanding wrestler. She is ranked number one at 130 pounds with a 30 win, 2 loss record. Guzik Ready. Reflecting on her first season in the Purple and Yellow, All Burnett's Lynn Linny Guzik is proud of the work she has put in le- to get to this level. I've worked really hard with Seabolt women's wrestling team and coach Samantha Seabolt and my All Burnett team and coaches to get to where I am now, Guzik said. I'm going to continue to work hard heading into Super Regionals and State. She will enter the Region 6 Super Regional with a 40 win, 1 loss record and is ranked number three by the IWCOA at 130 pounds. Xavier Debut. The Xavier Girls' wrestling team looks to make history yet again in the Region 5 Super Regional, hoping for its first state qualifier. Head coach Henry Reeks said the Saints started the season with eight wrestlers and all eight have a chance to make it to state. I'm not counting anyone out, Reeks said. Any given day, any given athlete can rise to the occasion and do some pretty amazing things. Vinton Shellsberg Sailing at the beginning of the season, the Vinton Shellsburg girls' wrestling team was ranked number 12 by the IWCOA. The Vicats climbed the rankings all season and are currently at number 5. Head coach Brant Corcoran said the team wasn't phased by its preseason ranking. We knew that as long as the team works hard and trusts the process, everything will play out in the end, Corcoran said. Vinton Shellsburg is coming off its first. Wamac conference wrestling title since 1972. The Vicettes postseason run will be led by returning state qualifiers Ellie Wheats ranked number three at 115 pounds, Bree Swenson ranked number two at 120 pounds, and Chloe Sanders ranked number two at 130 pounds. In boys high school basketball high marks for RVC guards. Cascades Lawrence scores 47 points. West Branch's Amman scores 48 in school record outings. Jackson Lawrence's very first shot attempt as a varsity boys basketball player at Cascade High came two years ago when he was a freshman. It was a memorable one, though not in a way you might think. The junior guard hoisted a three-point attempt from the right corner in a game against West Liberty. The nerves were kicking in that game it was my first varsity game, Lawrence said. We weren't playing against a very good team by any means. They put me in, first shot, hit the side of the backboard. Didn't even come close to hitting the rim, said Cassie coach Nate McMullen. Now it's kind of a funny joke between me and him. It's a joke because of everything the 6'2 junior has done since then. He ended up starting by the end of his freshman season Led Cascade in scoring last season and has increased his output this season to 22.3 points per game. Then there was last Saturday. Lawrence absolutely went off, scoring 47 points in a 94-75 win over Wilton in the River Valley Conference crossover event at McCookada. That broke the school record for points in a game, surpassing the 46 scored in a game by a guy named Greg McDermott. The same Greg McDermott, who is head coach at Creighton. That was pretty nuts, Lawrence said. Greg McDermott, he's practically a celebrity around here. Later that night, he reached out to me and said congratulations, so that was pretty special. Lawrence made 17-22 shots from the field against Wilton, including going 10-for-12 from three-point land. The 10 trays also is a single-game school record. Perhaps the best part of this story is that no one really knew exactly how much damage the kid had done. It started off with just a jump shot, McMullen said. The next thing you know, third quarter rolls around, fourth quarter rolls around. Coach Reagan takes, just kind of said, it seems like he's got about 50 points. We had no idea because Maquoketa doesn't have the scoreboard that shows you exact individual points. It just felt like I knew it was going in every single time, Lawrence said. Pretty amazing. I'm not going to lie. Arneman puts up 48. As if Lawrence's record game wasn't enough, another River Valley Conference guard provided one of his own Wednesday night. up One upping Lawrence, in fact. West Branch senior guard Holden Arneman popped for 48 points in his team's 83-34 win over Durant. Yes, that's a school record. Arneman made 19-27 shots from the field, going 8-for-11 from beyond the three-point arc. For kicks, he added a team-high six rebounds, six assists, and five steals. A four-year starter and returning All-Stater, Arneman is averaging 24.1 points per game. West Branch's 11 wins, five losses, going into its big game tonight at Class 2A number 10 Iowa City Regina. And the MVC CIML Showdown, the second edition of the MVC CIML Showdown is Saturday in Central Iowa. It's only five games as opposed to the seven-game event earlier this month at the Alliant Energy Powerhouse in Cedar Rapids. The highlight game is without a doubt Cedar Rapids-Kennedy versus West Des Moines Valley in a matchup of the top-ranked and fourth-ranked teams in Class 4A. It will be played at 1.30 p.m. at Waukee High School. Linmar and Des Moines Roosevelt play the opener at Waukee at noon. In college basketball, Iowa State holds off Kansas State in intense fight. No clear answers after a post-game exchange. 47 fouls were called. Elbows swung vigorously and occasionally maliciously. And in the winning moments of number 23 Iowa State's grinding 78-67 Big 12 men's basketball win Wednesday night over Kansas State, Even the head coaches got heated. Wildcat coach Jerome Tang spoke animatedly with Cyclones coach T.J. Otzelberger in the handshake line before turning to point a finger toward the area behind his team's bench. But what was said between the coaches and what precipitated the exchange? No clear answers emerged for those questions. I think there's a point in time when things are said between coaches that need to stay that way, said Otzelberger, whose 23rd ranked team improved to 15 wins, 4 losses overall, and 4 wins and 2 losses in Big Ten play before a vociferous crowd of 14,267. So that's where we'll keep it, but again, a hard-fought game by both sides. Tang's take on the post-game conversation, or another intense interaction with Otzelberger that took place earlier between coaching boxes, nothing happened, said Tang, who was whistled for a technical foul with two minutes, one second remaining as ISU clung to a 66-62 lead. We talked about a situation that took place during the game, and he said he would check into it. I told him thank you. I love TJ. Great job. What an unbelievable environment out there. Cyclone freshman forward Milan Mamsilovic scored a con- in-conference career-high 19 points, eight of which came after Tang's technical foul. The biggest shot for Mamsilovic, a wing three-pointer with 1 minute 29 seconds left that restored a double-digit lead, ensured ISU would climb into a three-way tie for second place in the conference standings with Kansas State, Houston, and Saturday's opponent at Hilton, Number 7, Kansas. Wide open three and just knocked it down, Momsilovich said. But Momsilovich noted that an even bigger shot sprang forth moments earlier. Senior guard Curtis Jones drilled a three-pointer with 2 minutes 49 seconds left after fellow guard Keyshawn Gilbert chased down an offensive rebound. That play gave ISU a 66-62 lead that mushroomed after the technical foul call. There was certainly nobody that made more toughness, gritty-based plays in that game than Keyshawn. In terms of charges, loose balls, rebounds, and then none bigger than that one, Otselberger said. And I would agree with Milan that that basket gave us a lot of confidence. The crowd exploded. Jones scored 18 points and sank all five of his free throws. Gilbert led the Cyclones with a career-high 13 rebounds while adding 15 points in a game-high three steals. Here's a rundown of what's on television today in the sports world. At 6 p.m., the Mavericks are at the Hawks on NBA TV. And at 8.30 p.m., Trailblazers at Spurs on NBA TV. In the National Hockey League, the Golden Knights are at the Rangers on six, at 6 p.m. on ESPN. In men's college basketball, Ohio at Kent State at 5.30 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network. Michigan State at Wisconsin at 7 p.m. on FS1. St. Joseph's at St. Bonaventure at 7.30 p.m. on ESPN2. Utah Valley at Seattle at 8 p.m. on ESPNU. Stanford at California at 9 p.m. on FS1. In men's wrestling, you can catch Michigan at Ohio State at 6 p.m. on the Big Ten Network and Iowa at Illinois at 8 p.m. on the Big Ten Network. And in the NFL, 49ers Purdy keeps focus firmly locked on Lions. Rock Purdy goes into his second straight NFC Championship game not worried about his early game struggles last week or basking in the glow of a comeback win or reliving the injury that derailed last year's playoff run. The focus for Purdy is always ahead of him. All what stands between Purdy and the San Francisco 49ers heading to the Super Bowl is the Detroit Lions. It doesn't matter if you played good or bad, Purdy said Wednesday about last week's start. I don't take really any of that with you to the next week. It's a new game, it's a new scheme, and it's a new environment. Everything about it is new, so it's almost like you've got to clean the slate, learn from the mistakes, build off the good things that you've done. Purdy has done that well all season coming back from the elbow injury, suffered in a 31-7 NFC title game loss to the Eagles a year ago to return to this stage. Purdy got hit hard on San Francisco's opening drive and tore a ligament in his throwing elbow. That forced into action fourth stringer Josh Johnson, who joined the team late in the season, and he tried to keep the game competitive. But the Niners fell behind by two touchdowns before Johnson left with a concussion early in the third quarter, forcing Purdy to finish the game even though he couldn't throw the ball more than a few yards. Now they are back with a healthy Purdy and the confidence that this time will be different, that they don't become the fifth team ever to lose in the conference title game in three straight seasons. Obviously, I'm excited that we're here, Purdy said. Last year is last year. That was its own game. It hasn't been anything that has bled into this year or this game. This is the 49ers against the Lions now, so it's a new year, a new approach. Purdy worked his way back to being healthy and had a stellar regular season by becoming the 49ers' first quarterback in more than 20 years to throw for more than 4,000 yards or at least 30 touchdowns. Former Iowa State quarterback led the NFL with a 113 passer rating and his 9.6 yards per attempt were the most in the NFL for a qualifying QB since Kurt Warner had 9.9 in 2000. His teammates are steadfast in their belief in Purdy. We're all sitting here because of him, obviously, receiver Brandon Ayuk said. Steady. A dog. Just a football player. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Scott Splayback. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the blind.